Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with a scientific data analyst and a single astrobyte of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study contextual information of transients. I'm Melana Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at Yale University, where I studied the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 45, Jammin' with the GBT. In today's episode, we'll focus on the science enabled by the groundbreaking Green Bank Telescope, a 100-meter radio dish tucked deep into the middle of rural West Virginia. In this episode, we'll refer to GBT and GBO somewhat interchangeably, but technically, Green Bank Observatory, GBO, is the facility that hosts GBT, the Green Bank Telescope, which is the instrument. If you want to call it the groundbreaking Green Bank, I can't even say it. <laughs> Do you want to call Groundbreaking it <laughs> Green Bank Telescope. Then it's GBGBT. GBGBT. Hosted by the GBGBO, GBGBO. of course. <laughs> Green Bank Observatory has been taking radio observations since 1958, which is not that long after radio astronomy was born, actually. They were there at the start of it. Radio astronomy was born? What does that mean? Yeah, radio astronomy was started actually not that long ago. <laughs> Early on, Carl Jansky, the namesake of flux, which is used in radio astronomy, was born and, and took his measurements actually not that long before that, before 1958. He was one of the people to first propose that you could detect radio emission from galactic, extragalactic sources. So Green Bank Observatory has been taking radio observations since 1958, but the instrument that it hosts, Green Bank Telescope, the GBT, has only been operational since 2001. GBT operates between 0.1 and 116 gigahertz, and it plays a very active role in lots of different radio networks around the world, including the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, the Expanded Very Large Array, the Very Long Baseline Array. The names get a little ridiculous, but... So what did GBO do for 43 years when it didn't have a telescope? GBO <laughs> did have telescopes. It didn't have the current Green Bank okay. telescope. So okay. actually, the instrument that it hosted before GBT <laughs> was, I think it was a 90 meter disc, just a little bit smaller. Okay. But it still was pioneering for its time even before the GBT was constructed. It actually, the original dish collapsed. Oh. And so the new one had to be constructed. What's the deal with the naming convention in radio astronomy? I feel like every other field has gotten some kind of catchier or at least memorable names for the telescopes that they use. But in radio astronomy, it's like the trust us, it's super big array. I mean, what's the deal with that? The, yeah, the annoyingly large array. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is something I think we'll touch on in a little bit is the arrays, the networks that we need in radio astronomy are significantly bigger than we need in a lot of other wavelengths. Before we get there, I just thought it was interesting. I was researching it. Lots of things that we take for granted every day emit radio waves that can provide interference for doing radio astronomy. So 
Turns out the area surrounding Green Bank Observatory has been designated a U.S. National Radio Quiet Zone. That area spans nearly 13,000 square miles. Cool. This is something that you might not have thought about, but it turns out that because of that, it's now a haven for people believing to suffer from electromagnetic hypersensitivity. This is a thing that's never been scientifically proven. People say that they have sensitivity to electromagnetic signals that make their skin crawl, that make them hot. And as a result, there are tons of people from around the world that flock to Green Bank just to live there in the radio quiet zone. Interesting. Are there not other radio quiet zones around the world? I think there's one in South Africa because I know there are a bunch of radio telescopes there. Interesting. Mm, that would make sense unsurprisingly because it's a quiet zone it's also the the headquarters for a lot of military intelligence work by the nsa of course it is so now i think it's time for a couple of intro questions will and milena what is interferometry and how does it work when i first learned about interferometry it was when i was doing my first research project in high school so i was around 16 years old and sometimes when you learn about something that's really complex you kind of just say oh it's just magic it just works like magic how do you possibly accept it and i don't know for whatever reason i kind of had the opposite reaction i was like nonplussed by this incredibly cool method and to this day i don't know why i was i mean i thought it was cool but i was not impressed by it as much as i did become when i later learned how it actually worked so here's the crux of radio uh here's the crux of radio astronomy you don't need one single large antenna dish to measure things in the universe. You can actually combine separate antennas into one image and it actually combines together. So you can have an antenna here, an antenna there, an antenna there, and as long as you set things up right, it'll actually work as like one large telescope instead of a bunch of little tiny ones. And the way it really works is by timing. Unless the thing you're looking at is directly above the ground, it's a little bit off to the side. So the light is gonna reach one detector on the closer part of the ground before another. So the radio waves arriving at that one station compared to a different station arrive in a different phase. That is a different alignment of its peak and trough of the light rays compared to the next station. And so you can compare that and see how the alignment differs and actually use that to measure where you're looking at the object. And you do that with enough stations. You have enough comparison points between all the different phases you can put them together. It doesn't quite explain how all of it works behind the scenes, but that's the crux of it. Really, really accurate timing. And it really only works for longer wavelengths because the longer wavelengths have longer phases between a peak and the next peak, so it's easier to do. When the wavelengths get short, it becomes too hard. The errors are too high. So this starts to bleed into my next question. Why do we need something like this for radio observations? Why do we need massive networks of different dishes? Right. So if you want to make these measurements for long wavelengths, you really need large dishes in order to actually get those observations with high angular resolution. So the angular resolution that you can get with a circular aperture telescope, so these telescopes tend to be circular, is given by this equation, theta or angular resolution equals 1.22 lambda over d, where lambda is the wavelength that you're observing at, and d is the diameter of your telescope. And this comes from the diffraction equation for light as it's passing through a circular aperture like a telescope dish. So that limits the resolution with which you can see at a given wavelength because you get diffraction that causes interference between the rays 
within a given beam of light. And so that produces bright and dark spots and tells you what the limiting resolution that you can get is. So if you want to get high resolution, you really need that D value to be as large as possible. And when you have many telescopes that are comprising an array of telescopes, then you can actually effectively treat it as, again, one big telescope. So it's kind of like you have one telescope mm -hmm. that is the diameter of sort of the longest distance between telescopes that you have within the array. So the observations, again, then from all the telescopes are combined into one observation and you have fewer photons or fewer counts. So you aren't going to get more photons if you have less collecting area, but you're still able to get the larger D at least. It's kind of confusing because we talk about high resolution, but what that really means is a smaller angular yeah. resolution on the sky, right? That's what high resolution yeah. is. And that's why we want D, the size of the, the dish or the size of the array to be bigger and bigger. Yeah. So you actually want that theta that's in that equation to be as small as possible because then you have, you have a small angle at which you can resolve what's on the sky. And that also explains why the configuration of different arrays are changed dynamically based on the type of observation that you're taking, right? In the same way that a single dish might be changed based on the observation that you may want to take in a different wavelength range. Yeah. Yeah. What can we learn in radio that we can't learn at other wavelengths? And what objects might we be able to study? Well, there are some things that emit very strongly in radio. And what comes to mind are active galactic nuclei and all the different types of active galactic nuclei there are, depending on their orientation pointing toward us. It's possible to see features of the AGN in other wavelengths, but in radio, that's the number one way. And so that's also how we produced that famous image of the black hole in M87 was in radio astronomy, because that's where it emits most strongly. Another one that comes to mind is pulsars, and they emit the famous pulsar beam in the direction of Earth, that's mostly in the radio waves, and that's going to be the topic of the astrobite that I'm presenting. Though many things in space emit in radio waves, it's usually much weaker than the other wavelengths. So like for stars, it wouldn't make sense to look in radio. There are radio emissions, but they're too weak. You'd rather look in the optical or maybe the infrared. Radio wavelengths often can be used to tell us about relatively cold and dark objects. Mm. They're pretty long wavelengths and low energy, so they're often used to study star formation. They're really commonly used to image protoplanetary disks, so you can see the distribution of gas and dust around stars as planets are forming. They're also used to study supernova remnants, accretion disks around black holes, because those are gas. And for the pulsars, you're actually seeing like the magnetic poles of charged particles that are around the pulsars at the poles. I normally think of pulsars as something relatively high energy, but I think what we're seeing is actually just like charged particles that aren't necessarily super high energy when we're looking in the radio, at least. Yeah, when you mentioned AGN, Will, active galactic nuclei, the process underlying that radio emission is synchrotron radiation, mm. right, where you have charged particles cycling around magnetic field lines. And that's something that also occurs in some supernovae. And so radio emission actually probes like a really unique aspect of the early emission of some supernovae. But it's only been observed a couple of times, but it provides a window into the explosion that you wouldn't get in optical. Great point. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, my next question, what is Channel 37 and why is it important? Uh, that's the Food Network. Next question. 
All right, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, very importantly, Channel 37 does not exist in broadcast television. There is no Channel 37. And the reason is because it's important for radio astronomy. That's one of the primary channels that is used. So all telecommunications in the U.S. does not use that narrow band. So anywhere around 1 to 36 are used and 38 and up are used. But it's radio quiet in band for 37. Next question. What is Project Ozma? What is Project Breakthrough Listen? Yeah, so these are two different searches for extraterrestrial life that are looking for radio signals that might have been sent out by aliens. <laughs> and so Project Ozma was the earliest of these two. It was led by Frank Drake, the guy who came up with the Drake equation, if you're familiar with that. And Project Ozma was run from April to July in 1960. So it was looking for the frequency that corresponds to the 21 centimeter hydrogen emission line uh, with the assumption that technologically advanced societies would recognize that particular frequency as being especially important as this universal frequency since it shows up so much in astrophysics. But the project ended up mostly just finding static. Um, so I think that was actually the conference after Frank Drake did this project was where he started talking about the Drake equation. But the actual results from this particular project were they didn't find aliens, which is, you know, we would probably know at this point if they had found aliens in 1960. <laughs> and so now Project Breakthrough Listen is a more modern version of this project. So this is a modern SETI program that's surveying a million nearby stars and a hundred nearby galaxies to search for radio and also some optical laser transmissions from extraterrestrial life over the span of about 10 years. And this is the largest scale SETI program ever conducted. And it's actually based in the UC Berkeley Astronomy Department where I did my undergrad degree. So there was this entire floor that was sort of dedicated to Breakthrough Listen. So what you're saying is you have really deep ties to Project Breakthrough Listen. <laughs> yeah, I was never actually directly involved in it, but I know a lot of people who are part of it. Um, yeah, and it's ongoing. So we are somewhere in that span of 10 years. I actually have no idea whether we're towards the beginning or the middle at the end. <laughs> well, I know I asked the question, but not so fast. This isn't going to be another alien episode. Instead, Will has an astrobite for us about how GreenBank was used to solve the two-body problem that many of us in academia will experience at some point in our careers. <laughs> All right, so today I am presenting the astrobite called Double Neutron Star Trouble, and that was written by Brent Shapiro-Albert, and the author of the paper is Gabriella Agazzi and others, and it has been accepted to the Astrophysical Journal. The topic of this astrobite is, as I alluded to earlier, pulsars, which we know is rapidly rotating neutron stars whose radio beam is in the line of sight of Earth, so like a lighthouse, the beam flashes in our direction at a predictable interval. And an idea with this predictable interval is to use the exact timing of the pulses to learn things about the pulsars because they're so predictable. And you're going to hear about this in the upcoming interview with Bren, that it's possible to detect really small changes in the timing of each pulse. If you know the pulse super accurately, you can see when it varies. So there are a number of different scientific uses for this. For example, uh, one part of general relativity has been validated over and over again using pulsar timing. Just a quick timescale question. What are the approximate timescales at which 
a pulsar is predicted to change the period of its emission relative to its period. So I guess dp over p. Hmm. Like we know long times pulsars spin down, but I think the pulsar timing is over short intervals. So it's really, it can go either direction. It can speed up or slow down on a short time scale. And I think we're talking something like six orders of magnitude down from the actual spin rate. Wow. I think we're talking nanoseconds compared to milliseconds for millisecond pulsars. And so if the timing is really good and you can get a really accurate timing, you can measure changes in distance between Earth and the pulsar of as short as like 30 meters or something wild like that. Wow. It's all about accuracy and the timing. The better the timing, the better the accuracy in all of the scientific results. Another thing this is used for is to detect low-frequency gravitational waves. So these are not as intense as the black hole mergers, so they wouldn't be found by LIGO, but they could be detected by pulsar timing arrays. So that's a collection of pulsars, and you compare them all to one another. So each one might individually spin up or spin down ever so slightly because of its own internal variations. But if you look for correlations and they all change in a certain way, that's evidence of gravitational waves. How long have pulsar timing arrays been employed in the search for low-frequency gravitational waves? They've been used for about 20 years or less, so not that long, certainly not as long as radio astronomy has been around, but not quite as recent as LIGO's latest upgrade. And still further back than the gravitational wave detection initially in 2015. Right, but I don't think they detected gravitational waves before LIGO. Have they detected gravitational waves at all? Not to my knowledge, no. But if LIGO is any lesson, you just have to keep working and making it stronger, and eventually you'll succeed. At least, that's what they believe. That was a little heartwarming. That was sweet. Well, I mean, everyone wrote off gravitational wave detections because they'd been working on it for so long, but they persisted, and so you got to give them credit. Another use case for pulsar timing is studying individual neutron stars if you want to learn about their interiors, because we know they're wacky. They're super <laughs> fluidic, but beyond that, what else do we know? So imperfections in rotation might be evidence of what's going on on the inside. But this study is focused on one particular pulsar, and it was actually first discovered by accident using Green Bank. Hmm. And then they followed up with more observations and found an unusual timing situation. The pulsar timing changed, but the pulsar was so hard to detect it took 109 efforts of finding it to just detect it 50 times. But finally, that was enough where they could actually figure out the overall trend. And it turns out that the pulsar has a companion, which is why its timing changes in such an unusual way. And the eccentricity of the orbits is 0.3, which is a really elliptical orbit, much more so than any of the other binary pulsars known. That is, these are two neutron stars in a binary system, but only one is a pulsar? Only one is emitting a signal that we can detect? Definitely there's only one pulsar. So what the other one is turned out to be the subject of a, of a lot of uncertainty. And what they had to do was they had to look for the orbital parameters really carefully to try to see what they could measure. And so what they were able to do, and this is why this worked, is measuring a post-Keplerian orbital parameter. So we know Kepler's laws only perfectly work in Newton's description of gravity. But when you go into general relativity, when you go to the Einstein, the, the full solution of how gravity works, 
it doesn't actually, Kepler's laws don't hold anymore. You have to consider other effects. This is in some ways like imagining the orbits don't perfectly close on each other. That's one way of uh, seeing the effects of general relativity. And so if you're able to measure one of these higher level orbital parameters, the post-Keplerian orbital parameters, you can actually get the mass of both objects in the system. Otherwise, you would only be able to get the mass of one of them. And so they were able to find the total mass of the two is about 2.6 solar masses, which is a really chonky pulsar. <laughs> so just to make sure I'm understanding, they only observed one of the pulsars, and they could only observe it sometimes because it was right. moving around in the sky and you can only see it when it's pulsing. And they used the orbit of that pulsar and they tried to observe it many times, but only saw it a few times in order to figure out what the mass was of both components of the binary. Is that right? Right. Okay. That's right. Well, you said that was a really chunky pulsar, but that was the combined mass of the system, right? I believe it was, yes. So we're still not able to say how big one was relative to the other, or can we get that? I think because they only had one of the orbital parameters, they could only get the combined mass, and you would need to get another parameter to get the individual masses, but that's better than having zero masses, so it's something. Does that combined mass put any constraints on what type of object the secondary was? Oh, you bet it does. <laughs> so that led them to believe the most likely situation is that both are neutron stars. One is a pulsar, the other has its beam going off in some other direction. They're pretty confident, they can't rule out the possibility based on that alone, that it's not a white dwarf or even a star companion. So they needed to do some follow-up observations to see if they could get a little more information. And they used the Las Cumbres Observatory Optical Telescope because they wanted to see, is there an optical counterpart near the pulsar? Since white dwarfs and stars would easily be seen in optical and a neutron star would not, they would see, well, do we see anything there? And they saw nothing. So what that meant is, okay, it's not a white dwarf and it's not a star. It's got to be a neutron star binary, a pulsar neutron star binary, which is a really cool result. And so they're continuing to look at this system weekly, in fact, using a larger telescope, the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, which is another radio telescope located in Canada. This is CHIME, the instrument that's also automatically found a lot of fast radio bursts. Oh, good connection. So have double neutron star systems never been found before? No, they have. They're not many, but they have been found. Okay. So it's just that they're really rare, and so getting extra systems like that is important to build like any type of sample? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Individually, they're valuable too, because the major science use case for studying binaries is to understand how they formed in a supernova, because you would think that whichever one went supernova first could have blown the other one out of the system or dumped matter onto it, or there could have been some funky accretion going on that would have changed the dynamic. But somehow these two survived, and in fact survived in a very unusual, highly eccentric orbit. So I think that's a useful thing to study to learn about their formation. 
And in 2017, the very famous binary neutron star merger created a kilonova signal. Right. That was right. people always hail as like the, the largest evidence of multi-messenger astronomy ever seen before and launched this new era in astrophysics. And anyway, it's really interesting to see them studied from the other side of things before the merger event. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It'll be a long time before these merge, if ever, but certainly someday. Yeah, that's cool. And now it's time for our rocking radio reverberation of the very long day. <laughs> Has it been a long day? It's, <laughs> it's 9 a.m. and I'm feeling it. lawnmower <laughs> hmm. my guess is that this is like static from seti or something <laughs> <laughs> the most disappointing scientific result in ages <laughs> i'm gonna go with themed sonification of a pulsar both went thematic very interesting very interesting these are in fact the radio emissions of pulsar sonified mm. woo, woo. <laughs> will got this one these sonifications were created and released by Jodrell Bank Observatory. And just to get a sense for the different rotation rates of the systems, I'll play them again for just a second. So this first one. What's the rotation rate of that pulsar? Got like 10 a second, so 10 hertz. This is the pulsar at the heart of the Crab Nebula. Its rotation rate is about 30 hertz, or 30 a second. You were pretty good. Thank you. And the next one that I played right after it, what do we think the rotation rate of that one is? That's like the upper end of what I can tell is individual pips versus like a singular note. Yeah, maybe like... I think the ear's pretty good, better than the eye. 120 hertz 650 hertz what were oh, you gonna wow. say well? yeah i was gonna go a little higher than that i wasn't gonna guess that high though i was gonna guess like 200 <laughs> <laughs> so there you go i decided to go thematic for this episode and now you've heard radio waves on our radio show about radio astronomy all right now will's astrobite and myspace sound were both pulsar related but as you heard a little bit in the intro green bank is involved in a number of scientific endeavors that have nothing to do with pulsars to get the inside scoop on this multifaceted instrument and life in the Allegheny Mountains, we sat down with friend Gregory at Green Bank Observatory, and so here's what she had to say about it. I'm Bren Gregory, my pronouns are she, her, hers, uh, and I am a scientific data analyst at the Green Bank Observatory in Green Bank, West Virginia. Bren, thanks so much for being here with us today. You mentioned you're a scientific data analyst. Can you tell us more about what that means? Sure. So it actually means quite a few different things here at the observatory. I work with observers who want to come and observe with the GBT. So if you want to do some radio observations with our 100 meter single dish radio telescope, 
Uh, I am oftentimes a person that you will come and say, hey, can you help me set up my scripts? I don't know how to interact with the telescope and I will help you write your scripts for your scientific goals. Um, I help if you need help with data analysis uh, after your observations have gone through, uh, making sure that you're getting the data products that you want. Then uh, that's kind of the main part of my job, but I also do other small things around the observatory. Uh, so I help create documentation for observers to make sure that they have an observer's guide that's up to date. I help with that. Um, I also work with our 20 meter telescope on site, which is one of our education telescopes and students from all around the world use it. And it's kind of their first insight into radio astronomy. Um, so we'll have groups come on site and use that. But I help make sure that that telescope is up and running um, so that you can use it. And then I also work uh, with planning training schools and workshops so that people are prepared to use the telescope. Um, I help create, uh, in, right now I'm helping create a guided user interface for accessing RFI scans. So I kind of just kind of jump around in the science division doing many different jobs here. It does sound like a very multifaceted role. That's fascinating. It's quite fun. That sounds amazing. How long have you been in that position? So I've only been in this position for about a year and a half. I was a COVID hire. Um, okay. So that was an interesting experience. I'm sure. Um, so I got, yeah. yeah, I got hired in June of, not this previous June, but the June before. Mm -hmm. um, and I started remote. And so I got to know all my coworkers through Zoom for the first about year, actually. Are you still remote? No, I'm actually in my office. Uh, so that's pretty exciting for me. <laughs> um, so I'm on the site. Uh, the telescope is just across the way. But I, yeah, I learned everything starting remote and then got to know my coworkers with their actual bodies rather than just being a nebulous <laughs> screen. <so>. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to that position at Green Bank? I'm so curious because it sounds like a position that I, as an undergrad, never would have heard about something like this. Yeah. Um, so it's actually a pretty funny story of how I found it. So I grew up about two hours away from Green Bank, and I didn't know that the Green Bank telescope was here. And so it, I'm sort of coming home uh, after being abroad for so long. But I found it just kind of searching. I had finished my master's and I was looking for a position. I knew very little about radio astronomy at that point. I had taken a pulsars class in my master's. But that was really my only introduction to radio astronomy. So I found this just searching through Indeed as one does when you don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> and um, it was just listed there. And I decided to take the plunge and apply, even though I didn't have any radio astronomy experience. Is your master's in astronomy or a related field? Yes. So my master's is in astrophysics, but I focused on gravitational waves. So I was over at the University of Glasgow in Glasgow, Scotland. And I sort of just focused on gravitational wave events and multi-messenger astronomy. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you did with gravitational waves? Yeah, so I worked with multi-messenger astronomy and my master's was on the Glade Galaxy Catalog, which is used for locating gravitational wave events. So when you have that multi-messenger event where you have the gravitational wave, and then you also have an electromagnetic counterpart uh, occurring. This is used to help localize that gravitational wave by looking for that electromagnetic counterpart and creating smaller portions of the sky, so these catalogs where you can find these events faster. So my specific research was on estimating the errors for the completeness of this catalog. We really wanted to get an idea of how complete the catalog was. If, if we're missing any galaxies in this catalog, that would affect our localization chances. So that's what I worked on for my master's. 
what made you want to apply abroad for your master's? And what was that process like? Yeah, it was. So I studied abroad in my undergrad, which is something I always recommend to everyone all the time, because it's such a life changing experience, which sounds kind of cheesy, um, but it really <laughs> is. So I studied at the University of Sussex in Brighton, England in my undergrad. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, I knew I wanted to go get my master's in astrophysics, but I had no idea where. I was looking at the U.S. and then a thought popped into my mind. I was like, wait, I can do that abroad. That's something I can do. So I applied to a bunch of different schools over in the U.K. because I really loved living there and just kind of like the atmosphere and the living style. Also, I only speak English, and so I sort of needed a place where I could speak the language, although I wish I could speak more languages. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I ended up at the University of Glasgow. Glasgow is a really fun city. It's kind of the lesser known big city in Scotland. And so I chose that school based off the wide variety of classes that you could take. The process, though, is pretty interesting because you have to also think about a visa, which you don't have to think about in the U.S. So, yeah, I searched for programs that were going to give me the widest range of astronomy-related classes because I came out of my undergrad not knowing what area of astrophysics I was interested in. I, ha I went to a really small liberal arts school, and there were very limited research opportunities. So I sort of found my way into astronomy based on a research opportunity. I didn't know what else was out there, so I wanted to really experience different classes. So I took everything from pulsars to gravitational wave astronomy to uh, statistical mechanics, just like the normal classes, but also uh, rocket science classes and supernova classes. So just a really wide range of classes. Got it. And then you completed your master's wanting to continue in gravitational waves or wanting, wanting a complete change of direction? So I did finish my master's wanting to continue in gravitational waves. Um, so I did succeed in finding that small portion of astronomy that I enjoyed. Um, I knew that pulsars were a great way to look into gravitational waves with pulsar timing arrays, looking at the stochastic background of gravitational waves. So when I was applying to Green Bank, I knew that there was an opportunity for me to kind of get to know and understand pulsar timing arrays better. I came from the LIGO background of gravitational waves, um, and then I switched myself over to the radio side. So I think you mentioned that there are a lot of different facets to your job at Green Bank. Do you have a particular research project that you're personally pursuing, or uh, do you just sort of contribute to a bunch of different projects that are being worked on there? I contribute to a lot of different projects in small ways, but right now I'm really involved with some RFI scan access tools. So we do a lot of work on RFI, which is radio frequency interference. So when you're observing with, with radio waves, anything around us electronic-wise typically gives off this frequency interference. So your cell phone, we can see your cell phone with the GBT if you have it on when you're down site. Wi-Fi interferes, so many different things. That's why if you live close by, you can't have Wi-Fi. We're in the national radio quiet zone for a reason, so we don't have cell service. All of this stuff, we're trying to limit the effects of RFI on our observations so that you can have clear observations and so you can see your signal well. We do regular scans to make sure that we can see the RFI environment in the surrounding area. And I'm involved in helping with the reduction pipeline of these scans and making sure that users can access these scans to plan for their observations. Because there's nothing worse than planning for your observation, not looking at the RFI scans and realizing that your lines are, say, right where a satellite line is. 
and you just may not be able to see your lines. So I'm involved with making sure we have an interactive website and um, guided user interface for observers to use. Bren, do you live within or outside of the, the dead zone, the quiet zone? I live right on site. Um, so wow. I have no Wi-Fi. I don't have cell service. I love living on site. You really, it's really peaceful. Mm. But yeah, I think the closest time I get service is if I drive 30 minutes away to get cell service. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So I had to get a landline, which was a new experience <laughs> for me um, going back to the early 90s. Right. But yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's great. Yeah, because I was going to ask about your work-life balance at Green Bank and how that maybe compares to your work-life balance during your master's program. I'm sure being in the radio quiet zone influences that a lot. It does. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I have a better work-life balance here at Green Bank. My master's was just a year for my okay. full master's. So I took all my classes and did all my research in a single year. And so I didn't really have a life balance at that point. It was just work. <laughs> But here it's great, actually. We have so many trails and things to do outside. So I'll go biking just like around the telescopes, which is a really cool experience. Um, you're just biking past this giant 17 million pound telescope. <laughs> but it's also, it's pretty great because you work with really great people um, who also want to do stuff outside and want to kind of experience the surrounding community. So you get really close to the community here in Green Bank and supporting the local people. How big is the community there? Yeah, so I actually don't know the exact number. We just did the census, so I'm sure I could look it up. Um, but I would say it's probably about 150 to 300 people in Green Bank. So we've got two little towns kind of smushed together here, uh, which make up Green Bank. In the surrounding area, you've got some other large towns. So about an hour away, we have Elkins, which I would say is a pretty large town, and Marlinton in the other direction about the same uh, time frame away. So it's, it's small, but you get to know everyone really well. And that's something I missed, I realized, living in Glasgow, where I didn't know anyone besides your immediate group of friends. Here, you know everyone, you know who's uh, driving what car. So if something happens, somebody's always around to help, which <laughs> is great if you don't have cell service. So, Bren, you mentioned that part of your job, part of one of the many roles of your job, is creating RFI maps to help visiting scientists get better data for their own particular research. Is a lot of that research then searching for pulsars or across the scientific disciplines? So we have a wide variety of science that happens here at Green Bank. Um, so we do have pulsar searches and pulsar timing arrays. So a lot of people use the telescope for pulsars. We have a lot of neutral hydrogen searches and looking at neutral hydrogen in the galaxy we do a lot of star formation as well. We look at higher dense gas for star formation. We have people who work with active galactic nuclei. We have a really, really wide range because our telescope can see from pretty low frequencies, about, I would say, 300 megahertz to all the way up to 115 gigahertz. So that is a wide range of frequencies that many different science areas are in. We also have Breakthrough Listen, who's looking for techno signatures on the telescope. So pretty much if you can think about the astrophysics that you want to study, we can probably find a way to use the telescope to look at it. Which of those science areas do you find most exciting? Oh, that's hard. I mean, I'm <laughs> always going to say pulsars. So I find okay. the pulsar area really exciting with gravitational waves. But I really do find birth and death of stars interesting as well. And we do a lot of work with that here as well. We do a lot of chemical inventory as well here. So that's kind of determining the chemical inventory of the galaxy and the relationship between 
chemistry and the phases of star and planet formation through spectral line surveys and mapping of molecular clouds. And I find that fascinating as well. Very cool. Yeah. This position being at the nexus of so many different studies, I think has got to be just incredible. First of all, for networking. Second of all, to just be exposed to the broad range of the ideas that are out there. And especially right after your master's, are you thinking about going back for a PhD or are you perfectly happy where you're at right now? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> so I'm perfect right now. I'm perfectly happy where I'm at. Um, I'm really enjoying this job, but in the future, I think it may be in the cards for me having the opportunity to look at all of this different science and really pinning down the areas that I'm interested in. So valuable and being able to decide what area I would like to apply for a PhD in. Um, so it may happen in the future, or I may just be completely happy to stay at Green Bank for a very long time. We'll see what the future holds. Sounds like great options either way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have any pieces of advice that you could give to undergrads who are listening to the show and trying to decide on their particular career path? I think about this question a lot because I always want to think about what I wanted to hear when I was an undergrad. Right. And I think for me is that I wanted to hear that there's no set path. I felt like a lot of my uh, cohort in my undergrad we all heard the same path. You go and get your PhD, you go do a postdoc, and then you go become a professor. And I didn't think there were any other options. And I think that's what I would have loved to hear was that there are so many different options out there. So if the PhD, if you want to go for a PhD and it's right for you, that's probably one of the most valuable things that you can do. But sometimes it's just not right for everyone. And I knew it wasn't right for me at that time. And I think that's something that I would have liked to hear as an undergrad. But also... Be open to other opportunities that you didn't plan for. So I would have never thought I would end up in Green Bank looking at radio astronomy. I didn't really think about radio astronomy at all much when I started in my undergrad. And so kind of being open to those opportunities that you think might not lead somewhere, but really will. That's really good advice. We've talked extensively on this show about the importance of having strong peers and mentors throughout this process of either applying to grad school, figuring out how to get started in research, figuring out whether you want to do outreach and what that looks like for you. Are there mentors that you can identify in your path that really helped craft getting you to where you are today? Yes, I have a couple mentors that I definitely wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for them. My advisor in college, Dr. Britt Scheringhausen, I would not be in astronomy, I don't think, if I had not met her. So she did an amazing job of getting me interested in science. I knew I was interested in physics, but I didn't know astronomy was where I was really interested in. And so having an advisor who really believes in you and can kind of guide you on a path without like setting that path for you, I think is really valuable. And she did an amazing job of that in my undergrad. My master's dissertation advisor also, Dr. Martin Hendry, did an amazing job of helping me find gravitational waves and just being really supportive of an international student in a different country and in a really intense program. And then I'm also really lucky here at the observatory to have many, many different mentors in different areas that have guided me in learning radio astronomy uh, to the level that I needed for the job, for making sure that I understand everything that's going on, but also making sure that opportunities are available, not just for me, but other students um, in, by creating these workshops or doing outreach and watching those scientists doing their jobs has just been amazing. Especially doing all that fully remotely has got to be so difficult. And I feel like without a strong framework in place to help you through it, I don't know how you would be able to accomplish the things you're accomplishing. 
Yeah, it's it was very much the framework and support of the observatory that got me through remote work. So also, the observatory is set up, I believe, in a way that really helps you find the areas that you're interested in and supports you. So that's been very valuable. You also mentioned the piece of your job being these workshops that you're hosting. Clearly, outreach is also some component of the work that you do there. Is that something that you decided you wanted to have a big role in, or was that part of the job description when you applied? So it was definitely something that I wanted to be involved with. I was asked by... um, the people who are running the workshops, if I wanted to help, and then I said yes. So it's great to see all of these scientists from different points in their career coming to learn how to use the GBT. And it's really amazing to see when we do get graduate students at the beginning of their grad's careers, and then they start to create these relationships with scientists. And we have a lot of scientists who have used the GBT that started out at these workshops uh, and you get to watch their career move on forward using the GBT. So that's really amazing to see. Yeah, it's great to hear that there are so many resources available for getting started with the GBT as well for those listeners who might be interested in using it at some point. I'm interested, what specific scientific advances do you see coming from GBT in the future, either very short term or maybe longer term? What are kind of the most exciting results that you think might come out sort of relatively soon? Sure. Uh, So I think one of the really exciting things that's going to come out of Green Banks relatively soon is detecting gravitational waves via pulsar timing arrays. There's with modest uh, projected increases in sensitivity in the pretty near term, as well as adding new millisecond pulsars. I think the stochastic gravitational wave background is expected to be detected with the GBT in the upcoming years. Um, And there's some amazing papers out by Nanograb about this, um, so that I think we'll see relatively soon. We're also building an ultra-wideband receiver that will help with pulsar timing arrays, and that's undergoing commissioning. So I think we'll see some amazing science from that coming up as well. So that's one really interesting area. And then we also have a great radar system. Um, So I think the bi-static radar observations of the solar system will reveal some interesting science in the upcoming years. And then we have a project that's been going on, LASSIE, which is the laser antenna surface scanning instrument. And that's been working to kind of improve the Green Bank Telescope's efficiency for observations at frequencies above 25 gigahertz, which oftentimes we use an active surface. And once you're in higher, higher frequencies, you have to have much better weather and be observing at night uh, because the active surface will change so much when you're observing. And I think we'll see some really great things coming out of that project. We've already seen some interesting results from that. So those are just some of the brief ones. There's just so many different areas of science that I think are going to have some really amazing results coming from the GBT data soon. Thanks, Bryn, very much for that interview. It was fascinating to hear about all the different science areas that Green Bank is expanding into in just the next couple of years. Yeah, it was great to hear it firsthand about all of your experiences and the cool science that's coming up. And to get a window into the work-life balance that you can get in a radio quiet zone. That's something I've never thought about before. It was cool. Yeah. Hmm. And now it's time for our one-sentence summaries. Will, could you give us your quick takeaway? Everybody knows that twins are a handful, but they also allow you to do interesting sociology experiments, kind of how a binary pulsar illuminates efforts to understand how they formed. And now we'll hear our one-sentence takeaway from Brent. 
Green Bank Observatory has some amazing technologies and receivers that are coming up, as well as our current receivers and technology that allow scientists to create amazing data. And you can get involved, or scientists can get involved, by submitting proposals to the Green Bank Observatory. We have two semesters for observing each year, and anybody interested in using the Green Bank Telescope for their scientific research can submit these proposals. There you have it. All right, so now for our very quick, super short, incredibly succinct discussion. Mm -hmm. I very rarely, if ever, hear about space-based radio observations. Is radio astronomy only ground-based? And if so, why? Yeah, it really is only ground-based. So the primary reason is what we talked about in the beginning. You either need a lot of antenna over a large area, or you need one really big dish like the Green Bank Telescope. Either way, it's expensive and difficult to launch into space. But the real reason that radio is done from the ground is because the atmosphere is completely transparent to most radio mm -hmm. waves. So there's no reason to go into space. There's no improvement. Yeah, it's great. You can observe during the day. You can observe on cloudy days. It's mm. wonderful. Nice. I feel like I'm in a cat in the hat story. You can observe with a cat. You can observe under a mat. You can observe <laughs> in a shoe. You can observe me and you. <laughs> <laughs> Should I ask another question? <laughs> no, that was incredibly succinct. Let's go for it. Say it, Melina. That concludes episode 45, Jamming with the GBT. If you'd like to read the astrobite that Will talked about today, then check out the link in the show notes. Can you believe it? We're now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Audible. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Tell your friends about the podcast that hairstylesvp.com is calling very nice guy. Beautiful. Superb. I will bookmark your website and take the feeds. I'm glad to find so many useful info here within the put up. We need work out more strategies on this regard. Thanks for sharing. A real review. <laughs> yeah, that was not automatically generated at all. That's pretty positive. Okay, so in reality, people don't leave us that many reviews, but if you listen... We have some. We have some. If you listen to the show and you like what you hear, please write about it somewhere and tag us. It really helps. Thanks for listening, <laughs> and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs> <laughs>